are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of the Most High God. And, and so that's, and Jesus tells them, quiet, don't, just shut up, don't say it, all right? And the other times, or whenever Jesus performed miracles, he would tell the people, don't tell anybody what I just did, all right? So he wanted to keep it all quiet. He wanted to keep his identity uh, veiled or, or covered up for a while. And also, when, when the apostles finally came to understand who Jesus is, when he asked, who do the people say I am, and who do you say I am, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, immediately Jesus says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't tell anybody. And when the three apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration are coming down, after that experience, Jesus says, don't tell anybody until I've been raised from the dead. So it's what's called the messianic secret. Jesus is trying to silence everyone from telling who he is until he's been raised from the dead. The next uh, item is the massive crowds and the search for solitude. As you go through the Gospel of Mark, it keeps telling you about all these massive crowds that are following Jesus, and then the next thing that happens, Jesus is trying to get away to a quiet place. And then the massive crowds again, and Jesus trying to get away to a quiet place. And the massive crowds again, and he's going to a quiet place. So after healing all the people uh, at Peter's mother-in-law, the next morning they can't find him, he's off in a quiet place. Uh, when, he, when the disciples come back from their missionary tour of Galilee, Jesus, and the crowds are so big, Jesus says, let's go to a quiet place. And it turns out that 5,000 people got there ahead of them. <laughs> but then he says, okay, after the three days and feeding the 5,000, he dismisses everybody and he goes up to a quiet place on the mountain and so on. It keeps going like that. Later, there's these huge crowds following him and he leaves the country and goes to Phoenicia, you know, the story of the Syrophoenician woman. He's always going back and forth between these massive crowds and then going to a quiet place. All right, so those are some of the characteristics of Mark. So we come to the purpose. The purpose is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark just opens right up. What's the first sentence of Mark? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark wants everybody who reads this book to know when they have finished reading this book. And what happens, at the end of the book, you have Jesus crucified on the cross, and when he dies, the Roman centurion <laughs> says, surely this man was the Son of God. So that's the, the main purpose, is that you, we would all believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Key verse. Well, you probably could have told me before I put it up. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The key verse in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we, we saw last week in Matthew, Jesus is the king. In Mark, Jesus is the servant. Everywhere he's going, he's serving, 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 even to the point of giving his own life for us as a ransom for many for the forgiveness of our sins. Simple outline, very, very simple. 
the first half of the book, who is Jesus? And the second half of the book, what has Jesus come to do? And the pivot is right there in chapter 8. Chapter 8, when Jesus finally asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then the very next paragraph, who knows it? <laughs> For the son, the son of Man is going to be rejected and put to death, and he's going to rise from the dead after three days. So who he is and what he has come to do. So I've got five main themes. We already, so many of these overlap each other. We already went through this one. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come to save his people by dying on the cross for their sins. This is the number one main theme, not only of Mark, but of all four of the Gospels. They all have a spot where they tell you, this is why I wrote the book, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, and so on. Right? Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of David. He is a divine human king who has come to establish the kingdom of God. When you go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels, the second biggest theme is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king, and he has come to establish the kingdom of God. Next, by his infinite power, Jesus has bound Satan, being demonstrated by his miraculous power to heal every sickness and to command every demon into submission. In, in the Gospels, you always see Satan is somehow involved in all the sicknesses that are mentioned there. He's, he's also, uh, and you see the demons everywhere, and by healing all these sicknesses, and by casting out all these demons, Jesus is showing his power uh, to over, overpower Satan himself. Satan has a lot of power, but Jesus has more, and he came to overpower Satan, uh, and that's demonstrated through all his miracles and uh, casting out of demons. So then, with Satan bound, the time had come for the gospel to be proclaimed to all the nations to gather all the elect into the kingdom of God. We're going to see that as, this as we go through the, the gospel in a minute. So Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God. He's bound Satan, which gives him the power to establish his kingdom. And with Satan bound, now the gospel is going out to all the nations of the world, and he's going to be gathering all the elect into the kingdom of God. And then finally, Jesus will return to raise all the dead, judge all mankind, and send everyone to either heaven or hell. So another major theme in all the gospels, the end of the world. Jesus is going to come again. All right, um, I'm really going so fast today. I must have had a lot, must have had too much caffeine or something. <laughs> so uh, I want to, maybe I'll just stop now and see if anyone has any questions or comments on what we've done so far. <laughs> Nothing. 
<laughs> Come on, you got to stretch the time out here. <laughs> Mira. Right. The Greeks, Romans, the Jews. What in particular makes Mark's focus toward the Romans? And what in the gospel indicates that? All right. It's getting a really difficult question now. I think as we go through Acts, we see that. First, Mark was along with Paul, and then later he disappeared, and then later he was with Paul again in Rome and so on. And so Mark had been to Rome and was involved with, in, in the city of Rome. And, uh, and also his focus on this Roman centurion that, that came to faith in Jesus Christ is, is a, an indication. Um, and they say, I mean, this is what I read, I don't know if it's true or not, but they say that the, the Romans were very you know, action-oriented people. So he's writing an action-oriented gospel to capture the Romans, right? Where, where Luke might be a, a more contemplative thing like Greeks, and, and Matthew is always quoting the Old Testament to show that this is for Jewish people who already know the Old Testament. So... I can't really answer it better than that. <laughs> yeah, the, the Easton Bible uh, definition defines Mark and has some elements there, tying it to Rome, says it's probable, points to the theory. He, uh, Mark makes no reference to the Jewish law, and Mark, the writer, takes care to interpret words for his Gentiles, which he likely to understand. Um, those are some of the, some of the indicators Great. Um, he uses certain Latin words that aren't found in any other Gospels, like speculator, The wonders of Google. <laughs> All right, there, there's uh, some more. All right, so uh, the next section I'm calling commentary, and we're going to go through really the whole Gospel of Mark. And um, I'm assuming that this, this crowd here basically is very familiar with the Gospel of Mark, <laughs> all the Gospels. You really know the Gospels well, and so I'm making that assumption in, in what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to go through, and I just, again, I want to tell everybody, I'm going to be brief, and I, if you want to jump in and say something, say it, or you want to question something, question it, and, and don't be... Uh, embarrassed to do that or whatever just jump in so I'm going to go through about 25 different stories and just pull uh, just mention maybe one or two sentences about the story and you're going to see that all these stories are related to the, the five themes that I brought up already yes Yeah, there, it, the elect are kind of, there's a, a narrow definition and there's a broader definition. In the narrow sense, it's everyone that's going to be in heaven when it's all over. Those are God's chosen people, God's elect people. And in, in the broader sense, it's everyone in the covenant. 
So in the Old Testament, all Israel is in the covenant, but not all Israel is going to be in heaven. You know, so there's a narrow sense and a broader sense. And the same with the church. The church is, is in the covenant. All people that are members of churches are in the covenant, but we're not going to see everybody in heaven. It, it, I don't know. Does that answer the question? Or? Yes. And it does say in Ephesians 1 that we were chosen before the foundation of the world and so on. And so, so it gets very confusing because there's a narrow definition and a broader definition, and, and, and it can get confusing if you mix those two up. All right. So going through the Gospel of Mark, we begin with the baptism of Jesus. And at the baptism of Jesus, we have the audible voice of God the Father declaring that Jesus is the Son of God empowered by the Spirit of God. Then uh, Jesus drives out an evil spirit. The story begins talking about the authority of Jesus. And, and it's the exact same verse that, that applies, at the, that is given at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where everybody is saying, that he, he doesn't teach like the scribes and Pharisees. He teaches with authority. Right? There's something amazing about the authority of Jesus. And the thing is, when all the scribes and Pharisees talk, they say, it is written, or thus says the Lord. You know, it's right there in the Bible. When Jesus talks, he says, I tell you. In other words, Jesus is appealing to himself as the final authority about everything. All right? And so he's teaching with an authority above anybody else uh, on earth. And then he goes, and, and he's in the synagogue, and uh, he commands the evil spirits, and they obey him. And the people are, are amazed. You know, we've never seen anything like this. He even tells evil spirits, and, and they obey him, right? They hadn't seen anything like that before. Question. Yes. Well, it, it might be like what Gary was saying in that he doesn't really, people that know the Old Testament more, like in Matthew, he's referring all throughout, quoting, you know, showing this is a continuation from the Old Testament. And the genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. Luke goes all the way back to Adam and, and follows the genealogy all the way forward. He's, they're all dealing with the Old Testament and bringing it up to now we're in the New Testament time where Mark is talking to the Romans who apparently w might not have known the Old Testament, might not have been familiar with it. Well, look, you know, we, we got four Gospels and, and, er and back then they had four Gospels as well. So it's not like people didn't know, but when people became Christians, they had all four Gospels, and they could, they could find out everything. They could read the Old Testament and see all the things that Matthew's. All four Gospels are for everybody, is what I'm trying to say. And so if one leaves something out, it doesn't mean you're missing it, because you get it somewhere else. Well, maybe because he wrote to the Romans, and they didn't know 
trust. And the way he verified it was the, uh, all the different uh, healings, like he healed the man with leprosy, he drove out the evil spirit. And that was his testimony to the Romans. I'm just sort of guessing here. But then, you know, Matthew, who wrote to the Jews, he started out with the lineage of Jesus to show that he was the promised son of David. Mm -hmm. Right. And also, Luke goes all the way back to the promise that God, that, uh, God made to you about crushing those serpents. Exactly, yeah. And uh, <laughs> that, that's, you know, we don't really, we can't really say 100% why one author put one thing in his gospel and, and another author did put it in. But really, all the gospels are written for everybody. But they had an original audience that he was writing to. All right, so here we have Jesus uh, healing a man with leprosy. His, he has the miraculous power to heal incurable diseases, diseases that no doctor could cure, no priest could cure. Jesus comes and he's healing these incurable diseases and in the end, leprosy is a picture of the incurable problem of our sin. And so all the miracles of Jesus, well, most of the miracles, I guess, they, they point their actual physical healings of one sort, but they're really pointing to something bigger. They're, they're pointing to the spiritual behind it. So he's healing a man with leprosy is the same as healing someone who has sin. Healing a blind man uh, physically, it really, he opens up our eyes spiritually so we can see. Healing the deaf physically, but he opens up our ears so spiritually we can hear. They all have spiritual ideas behind them. And in this one, leprosy is an incurable problem of our sin. And then we get to the next story. Jesus heals a paralytic. And the main idea there is Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. That's amazing. <laughs> There's no one in all the world that can forgive our sins but Jesus. And he comes, and, and even the, the, the scribes and Pharisees sitting there in the crowd, when he, does the heal, when he heals the man, they're all complaining <laughs> about him saying, your sins are forgiven. Nobody can do that. Only God can do that. Well, Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins, and he proves it by showing that he is God by telling the man, get up and walk, and he gets up and walks. So the disciples pick grain. says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, you have the, the Lord of creation. He creates everything in six days, and then the Lord of the Sabbath, he, as the Lord of the Sabbath, he sets apart the seventh day as a day of rest. And so the Lord of the Sabbath is also the creator of the world. So Jesus is indicating he's the creator that created all things. He appoints the 12 apostles. What Jesus is doing here when he appoints 12 apostles is he is establishing a new kingdom of God that will be built on the foundation of the 12 apostles with Jesus as the cornerstone of the foundation. 
And so he's purposely choosing 12 to, uh, to follow the pattern that was set in the Old Testament. Where does the nation of Israel come from? It comes from the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel that flowed from Jacob, who was renamed Israel. So in the same way that the old kingdom of God is, based, is, is founded on the 12 patriarchs, the new kingdom of God will be founded on, on the 12 apostles. So in other words, Jesus is indicating, I am here to establish a new Israel, a new kingdom of God, and it's going to be founded on these 12 apostles who we know later will go out and tell the whole world about Jesus. The story of Jesus and Beelzebub. This story tells us that Jesus has bound Satan and he is now plundering his house, transferring people from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. Satan is the strong man in this story and he's bound people. He's, they're demon-possessed and de Jesus is casting out the demons, setting the people free from Satan and bringing them into his own kingdom. There's a transfer taking place, which happened in all of our lives. When we became a believer in Christ, we were set free from the, the power of Satan, and now we, we are in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is showing that he is more powerful than Satan, and he is overpowering him and robbing people or taking them away from Satan and bringing them into his own kingdom. And, and books like Daniel and so on, they, they talk about the, the future kingdoms. They're really different versions of the kingdom of Satan. And the Roman Empire is the kingdom of Satan and Jesus. And through, now through the apostles going out throughout that kingdom, they're robbing people away from Rome, away from Satan, and bringing them into the kingdom of God setting them free. All right. Um, the parable of the mustard seed. I love this one. In this one, the kingdom of God has a small beginning, but in the end, it will incorporate people from all the nations of the world. And we see that when you go through the Old Testament, the kingdoms of Assyria, the kingdom of Babylon, they're described as trees with big branches and all the birds come in and make their nest on the branches and all the animals come in and bear their young under the tree. They're under the protection of the, of the great king. And now we have Jesus talking about a, a tree growing up with big branches and the birds of, of the air coming in and, and making their nests under, you know, in the branches. It's, in the Old Testament, it's, it's actually we're told what all those things are. It's the incorporation of all the nations into the kingdom, all the nations into the kingdom of Assyria, all the nations into the kingdom of Babylon. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to gather people from all the nations and bring them into the kingdom of God. And so it has a small beginning, but in the end, 
all the nations of the world will be represented there. Jesus calms the storm by divine command. Jesus sovereignly controls all of creation. Again, showing just how great he is. And this is maybe the first time in the Gospels where you see the disciples really like stand up and take notice. Whoa, what is this? He even commands the wind and the waves and they obey him? I can't believe it. What, what kind of man is this? There's something going on here that's way beyond what they originally thought when they were following Jesus. So it's a demonstration of a, of a divine power that, that indicated he's more than just a man. Then he heals the garrison demoniac. Now, if you know your Gospels, in Matthew, I think, he calls them the Gadarene demoniacs. Uh, Mark, the Gerasene demoniac, and maybe Luke is the Gergesene. <laughs> it's all different. I guess you were dealing with different languages somehow in that day, and each one had a different name for this particular place. But it's all the same story. Jesus heals the Gerasene demoniac. Jesus commands the legion of evil spirits into the abyss and restores the demon-possessed man to his right mind. So uh, the, the, the demons are begging, send, you know, send me into the pigs. And where do the pigs do? They rush down and they go down into the abyss, down into the deep, down into the waters, all right? And uh, it's just a, an example of the power of Jesus to send the demons into the abyss. And, and when he does so, this man who formerly... You could just call him insane, is now sane. When Jesus comes in and changes his life, it changes a man from total insanity to, to he's in his right mind now. All right? He's restored to his right mind. Isn't that? Wow. That's what he did for us, too. <laughs> he restored us to our, to our right mind. Before that, we were basically insane, trying to either deny God or, or go against God, whatever, however way we rebelled, and, uh, and now we are in our right mind. Yes? That's interesting. That's true. And uh, it may be, this is called, the area was called the Decapolis, which I'm not sure if that was part of Israel or not. It's, it's uh, it might have been a non-Jewish area or something. And he, he was, well, they were raising pigs, so I guess that means they weren't <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> so, yeah, I... In, in the end, he does tell the, he gives the Great Commission, go and tell the whole world. But at that time in history, uh, anyway, the man did go and tell everybody, and they were amazed. And later, he, when he came back to that place, there were 4,000 people that he fed at one sitting or whatever. And so he, he must have had a big impact on that area. I don't have a... a Good answer for why he would tell some to be quiet and others to go tell. Well, that's what we're asking to leave, too. 
Yes, that's true. That's true. All right, and um, all right. Now the disciples did; they were sent out throughout Galilee and and Judea and so on to tell everybody the kingdom of God is at hand, things like that. But it was this anyway. Uh, so then Jesus goes on and he feeds the five thousand, and he miraculously creates bread and fish to feed the crowds. Again, showing that he is the creator; he can create food for people to eat. Then he walks on water and the disciples take Jesus into the boat and worship him. Here's a, another example where this, nobody can walk on water. This is beyond what anybody can do. And here is Jesus walking on water and there is something so amazing and so extraordinary taking place here that they actually give him worship. They worship him. And all the Jews know you don't worship anybody except the one true God of the, old, you know, the Bible. And here they are worshiping Jesus because they're recognizing something that is way beyond what, what they would have ever anticipated. Then we have Peter's confession of the Christ. Uh, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And... And Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. His substitutionary death will pay the ransom price for our sins. It's just running throughout the second half of the gospel. Jesus has come to die on the cross for our sins. A transfiguration. King Jesus reveals his divine glory. And God the Father gives a second audible testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's the second time now. There are two times where, Jesus, where God audibly <laughs> tells the people, this is my Son. This is the, Jesus is the Son of God. And uh, on the basis of two or three witnesses, whatever, testimonies, it is confirmed. The rich young man, another great story. The main idea with salvation, with man, salvation is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So Jesus is telling his apostles, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. And that's what the, the apostles finally understand. They say, what? If that's true, then who can be saved? And the answer is no one. <laughs> no one can be saved. But with man, it's impossible, but not with God. With God, everything is possible. And it's only made possible by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And so we, 
we did nothing, <laughs> and Jesus did it all. And uh, we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. The ten indignant disciples. And there's our, our key verse. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're in the second half of the gospel. It's all about Jesus dying and saving us from our sins. He's paying the ransom price to redeem us from eternal punishment in hell. He paid the price. He suffered the equivalent of eternal punishment in hell for each and every one of us who believe in him. And uh, he did it. He paid the ransom price, which was death. Uh, eternal, the equivalent of eternal punishment in hell. The triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to inaugurate his reign as king over the kingdom of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! The king is here. The king has arrived. And Jesus is indicating, I am the promised king. I am the Messiah. I am here to begin my reign as king. Uh, they didn't understand it at the time, but... It wasn't until maybe 40 days later that he would ascend and take his place on the throne. And 10 days after that, he would pour out the Holy Spirit on the church. And, and that's his official enthronement. When he takes his seat on the throne and pours out the Holy Spirit on the church, he's indicating that I am God's chosen king, the one that's going to do all of that baptized with the Holy Spirit, and so on. So he's indicating that when he rides into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, and everybody is, is welcoming him as the king at that point in time. The parable of the tenants. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The kingdom will be taken away from the nation, from national Israel and given to the church. So throughout, from Abraham all the way to Jesus, the nation of Israel is the one that is promoting the kingdom of God. And then when Jesus comes, he's rejected by the nation of Israel. And now Jesus is saying, the kingdom will be taken away from you, national Israel, and I'm going to give it now to the church, the new Israel. The new kingdom of God is the church. So all that's taking place at that time. Jesus will return in power and glory to raise all the dead, to judge all mankind, and to send everyone off either to heaven or hell. And that's in, uh, they call the Olivet Discourse, or what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, and all of that. All of these things are coming out, uh, and so on. All right, the Last Supper. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant with a new sacrament. And this is a little uh, difficult to understand because it talks about the old covenant and a new covenant, and we might jump to the conclusion that there's two covenants, an old one that's gone and a new one that's, that's here. But really, there's only one covenant, but it has two administrations. There is an old administration of the covenant 
and a new administration of the covenant. But it's the same covenant all the way through the Bible. And here we have the bread. This is my body given for you. And the cup. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So again, pointing to the death of Jesus on the cross to pay the price for all of our sins and that by putting our faith in him, all our sins will be forgiven. Jesus is before Pilate and before Pilate. What's the big question? Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, I am the king of the Jews, said Jesus. And he confirmed it to Pilate. And then Pilate says, well, what am I supposed to do with the king of the Jews? You want me to let him go? And they say, no, crucify him. And so it's just in fulfillment of everything that Jesus had been saying. And in the crucifixion of Jesus, we have the ransom price of the substitutionary atonement that's talked about in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. It was paid in full by Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. He paid it all. And then in his death, we have the final cry, it is finished. All our sins have been paid for. At the moment Jesus died, all our sins were paid for. It was complete. It was perfect. There was nothing left that was needed. We add nothing to it. It's all done for us. It's, it is finished. It's over. The price has been paid. And uh, you might hear some places where people think that, oh, I'm such a horrible sinner. I need to suffer for my sin some more. It, it's, you know, Jesus didn't do enough. I, I have to suffer. Or others that will say, well, after I die, I go to purgatory, and I have to suffer there until all my sins have been paid for, and then I can get into heaven. The Bible knows nothing at all about anything like that. It's all false teaching. The, the true teaching is it is finished. It has been paid in full. There is nothing left for us to pay. Uh, we didn't pay anything. Jesus paid it all. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus. The angels announced the resurrection of Jesus. He appears over the course of 40 days. And then the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Go and gather all the elect from all the nations into the kingdom of God. The, the final ending of Mark, the final ending of Matthew, go out and you know, make disciples of all nations, bringing them into the kingdom of God, bringing them in under King Jesus. Any more questions or comments? The nature of the kingdom of God. Well, we have a king, Jesus. Jesus is the king. Uh, are you talking about as a, we see it in the New Testament? Or? I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, in the Old Testament, there is an Old Testament kingdom of God. The, the greatest example, David, he's the king over God's people, Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus is the king, and he's over God's people, the church, the new Israel. And the church is the new Israel, is the new kingdom of God, with Jesus as king, and he reigns uh, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are all uh, united with the King through the, the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what to say. Yeah. I think we're all participants in the kingdom of God until we get to heaven. We'll participate in the kingdom of God, hopefully doing what Christ has instructed us to do. Yeah. Well, the kingdom of God, it comes in stages. So the kingdom of God is both talked about as already here and present, but it's also something out there in the future. And so eternal life in heaven is also the kingdom of God in, in the fullest sense of the word. But the kingdom of God is here now. It came with the arrival of Jesus, the king, 2,000 years ago. And he's reigning over the church. And his command is to go out and bring in everybody you can. Bring them all in. And yes. Yeah, he's in that same place. The kingdom of God is not, what is it, meat or drink, but righteousness and the Holy Spirit, something like that, I forget. Maybe you know the quote? <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, the, the kingdom of God, like everything else, it has that aspect of what they call the already and not yet. It is already here in a small way, but when Jesus returns, it'll be here in the complete and full way beyond anything we could ever imagine. So. Whenever someone becomes a believer in Christ, they enter into the kingdom of God. Yeah, and so that's the, the message proclaimed to everyone, and God will bring them in. I don't know. I, when I read the Bible, I don't think in those terms. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell me to say, oh, there's all the not yet Christians. <laughs> he tells me there's all, all the unsaved, go and save them, or something like that. So I don't know what the answer is. That, that could be a way to think about it. I'm not sure what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Well, I think you know, a big part of the church is you see it also in the nation of Israel and 
in the Old Testament where it appears, Beelzebul or something or whatever, it's called the, the Lord of the Flies, yeah. where you get that name. But, but then uh, the Jews like did a little twist, language twist on it and made it the Lord of the Dung. Anyway, the Great Commission <laughs> go out and uh, gather the elect from all the nations into the kingdom of God. All right, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you were present with us this morning and you'll be present with us in the service. And just pray that you would glorify your name through uh, the sermon and through the music and through the prayers and confessions. And Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for dying on the cross to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> thank you very much, Clarence. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a hard thing to summarize the entire book in 45 minutes. Right. But you did a good job. I hope I didn't talk too much. I don't mean to get into talking. I actually finished on time. <laughs> so. You did great. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. I'll probably invite you back. <laughs> so I. I don't know why, you know, I always get nervous every time when I keep, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you would think you would get used to it, but you never do. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks, thanks. Okay.
something with this too. Oh, okay, yeah. thanks.